It's beginning to feel like Thanksgiving is what the Jews all sing. Since we cannot celebrate Christmas, it's the closest we have to Christmas. And it works fine for us. And here's the thing. I don't know. I'm feeling pretty musical today. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Thanksgiving's coming up. Ooh, can you feel the crisp air? The, the crunchy leaves beneath your feet? It's one of my favorite times of year. I love Thanksgiving. Always was my favorite non-Jewish holiday. Secular holiday. I love Yom Kippur. That's my Jewish one. That's my go-to. But otherwise, I'm a Thanksgiving man. In fact, Thanksgiving has always been a very special day for me because of all the times in my childhood, I always remember Thanksgiving's being very pleasant and wonderful. And we had a family tradition. We would go into the city. We'd watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and cheer as the balloons go by and yell when the people would walk by holding the balloons, like the Spider-Man people would yell, hey, Spider-Man people, and we'd get a reaction out of them. And the clowns would come and throw confetti, and we'd pick up the confetti and throw it back at the clowns. And, uh, you know, classic New York style, you pack a real tight confetti ball, you go, hey, clown, and then you, you nail them with it, and everybody cheers, and they go, hey, happy Thanksgiving, and there's just all this incredible cheer and excitement in the city, and we'd have hot chocolates and hot apple ciders, and after the parade, we'd go and get pancakes, or before the parade, depending on how much parade we were going to take in that year. And we'd go see a movie that came out on Thanksgiving. It was always animated because we were kids. And then we'd go to my parents' friends, the Heckers, may they rest in peace, um, Henry and Anita Hecker. And we would have a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner, and they'd be playing football on TV. And it was just a wonderful, exciting, amazing, magical day. And ever since then, I've continued on the tradition. In fact... At 34 years old, I've only missed three Macy's Thanksgiving Day parades in my entire life. That's 31. Not bad. And there were all reasons for the three that I missed, too. So, I mean, it wasn't like I just got lazy. I love Thanksgiving in New York. If you're ever able to make it to that parade, I highly recommend it. Because New York City, which could feel like a cold, dark, heavy, grown-up place sometimes for one day a year, becomes kid-friendly. And you have a license to become a kid again, at least for one day. And they take down the traffic lights. And instead of the taxis and buses dominating the streets and people yelling, finance, 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 it's giant Spider-Man and Snoopy and used to be Garfield. I think uh, Jim Davis told me that he was tired of paying for that float when I interviewed him. So they got rid of Garfield. But maybe he'll bring it back someday. But anyway, yeah, it's all exciting. And you go for a walk in the park and... It's, it's just an amazing, incredible day, and it's magical, and it's one day where New York gets to feel like this, um, like, this, like this wonderland, like this kid haven, like this exciting, friendly place that I always wish it would be. So I will be in New York for Thanksgiving this year, and we will, my wife and I will go to the parade, and we will get pancakes, and we'll get hot chocolates or apple cider, and we'll walk through the park, and we'll see an animated film that came out on Thanksgiving, and then we'll head to our friends, the Shapiros in New Jersey, for dinner, because my family doesn't do it till Friday night, which is when the whole family could get together. 
So that's how we do Thanksgiving. Now we double up, double up on the turkey. So I'm excited for it. Ready for the season. I'm ready for Thanksgiving. Okay, anyway, listen. Seasons one through five of Modern Day Philosophers are now on sale in the iTunes store. Please go and buy them. Support the show. It's a great way to support the show and get something back. If you're like, hey, look, I'm, I'm too good to take something back. I just like to support. There's also a donate button on moderndayphilosophers.net. You could donate. Donating to the show is grand. Donating to the show is a wonderful way to keep the show alive and keep it going and say, hey, I love the show and I love what you do. And here's my way of supporting you and keeping you alive. Thanks so much. All right. You can also leave five stars and a nice comment on iTunes. I know I say it all the time, but it really makes me feel good. And it really helps the show's visibility. And just for good measure, I'm going to read to you right now a recent review which put a smile on my face. All right, this review comes from somebody named Muppet or Man 80, which already made me smile because I know that movie, Jason Siegel's Muppet movie. Am I a man or am I a Muppet? I'm probably not doing that justice, but if I'm a Muppet, I'm a Muppet of a man. And he said, five stars, sincerely enjoyable. And then I started reading it and I was like, oh man, he's going to trash it after that. I really believed that for a second because it goes, it's safe to say this podcast is not for everyone. I'm like, oh man. But then I kept reading. If you like to think about what lies beyond the matrix of consumerism and pop culture that we readily blanket ourselves in, this is for you. I go, oh yeah, cool. I want those people to like this. Danny is refreshingly honest. Ooh, refreshing. Like grapefruit juice. And engages in sincere discussions with comedians about the struggles and joys of being creative humans. They're in the word humans, which I like. I like when people are like, hey man, you're a cool human. I don't know why, but I like the ring of it. Eventually, they awkwardly stumble. All right, all right. It gets awkward. I get it. It's fine. Through philosophy and attempt to sort through. And by the way, my wife was like, even when people compliment you, they know you're awkward. I'm like, so? I am awkward. I love it. I live it. I own it. I'm the awkward. I'm the king of awkward. <laughs> I'm the king of awkward uh, pride. All right. Eventually, they awkwardly stumble through the philosophy and attempt to sort through the deeper thoughts about life. In one episode, Danny explains to his guests that he wants each episode to be like a portrait of each guest. And I read that and I was like, oh, wow, they're listening. They get it. You know, they listen to the words I say. They internalize it. The people are out there and there. They understand. That is what I'm trying to do. Somehow, he almost clumsily plunks <laughs> the clumsy, plunking, awkward man. I'll take it along creating one brilliant masterpiece after another. Oh, that is very sweet and very touching. One more. This one's quick. I enjoy this five stars. This is somebody who's like, look, I enjoy it. I'll do it, Danny. Stop telling me to write the thing. I'll do it. So he wrote one quick line, and it does a trick. This is by Temp2290. And he writes, hello, Danny. I enjoy the podcast, the honest and open conversation. Thanks for doing it. That's it. That's all it has to be. But the other one was really nice, too. Please jump on iTunes, leave five stars, write a nice thing on there, and it'll help. And it's quick, and it costs you nothing, and it makes me smile. You can always write me at thecomical at yahoo.com, say hello, and I will write back hello, and more. Okay. I think we covered that. Now on to our sponsors. 
Today we have a very special sponsor, a very special sponsor indeed. I'm talking about another podcast. It's podcast supporting other podcasts. It's a beautiful thing. All right. I want to talk about this real quick. You guys got to check out this podcast. It's called The Fake Outrage Report. Alex Fasella, our very own Alex Fasella, the man who picks out the philosophers, M, if you will, the man behind the scenes, gives us our mission that we must execute every episode, was actually a guest on their show a few months ago, and it's great. You know how these days every little thing seems to get people pissed off? And there's a Twitter war over it, or a protest, and people are always upset for no good reason at all? Well, these guys take stories like that, and they decide whether or not it's actually worth everybody getting so pissed off about. Finally, a moderator. That's right. They're outrage moderators. It's the perfect show for this sort of trigger warning, everything is offensive era that we live in. And not only that, the stories that they cover, you really don't hear too often anywhere else. They had this one a couple of weeks ago about this grandma who got arrested and people got all mad about it. They did another one about a teacher in China who got in trouble for slapping his students. There's all kinds of different stuff there. It's a great palate cleanser for when you're tired of hearing people bitch about politics all day. I like it, and I think you'll like it too. So after you're done listening to this show, head on over to the Fake Outrage Report. You won't regret it. It's an awesome podcast. And make sure you let me know what you think. And thanks again to the amazing people over there at the Fake Outrage Report for sponsoring this episode. Podcast, supporting all the podcasts. It makes a podcast work around. All right. The Fake Outrage Report. And while we're on the topic of podcasts, I will give a quick honorable mention to my wife's new podcast, which just launched, Jewess. It's my wife talking to Jewish women about being strong Jewish women. And her first episode is with Rain Pryor, daughter of Richard Pryor, who's also a Jew by matriarchal lineage. They talk about being a Pryor and being a Jew. It's the Jewess podcast. All right, today's episode is also brought to you by a company called Green Blender. Green Blender, I don't have a jingle for Green Blender. Green Blender is a company that sends delicious, healthy, superfood ingredients so you can make smoothies and sends these to you right to your door with instructions. It's as easy as can be. All you got to do is open the box, take out their delicious, amazing, ripe, perfect ingredients, put them into your blender, Blend them up and you will have perfect smoothies every time. They are delicious. They are nutritious. They are not superstitious. I don't know, but I'm telling you, uh, I have had them. They sent me a box this week and they are amazing. I've tried making smoothies at home. It's a healthy thing to do. It's a good way to get in all your fruits and vegetables that you need every day. You're supposed to have some number of them. I don't know. My doctor has been telling me for years, but I'm telling you, it's very healthy and it makes you feel great. And it makes you feel like, hey, I can make smoothies. I could do this over here. What are you talking about? But you can't. Not without the help of Green Blender. You can't make them this good. I bet you can't. Check it out. Go to greenblender.com and see for yourself. Start today. See how it goes. Let me know about your progress. You'll be losing weight. You'll be feeling good. And you'll be eating slash drinking healthy. All right. Without further ado, except, of course, for the intro song, I bring you my talk with the incredible, smart, funny, talented Baron Vaughn. Enjoy. 
Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. Baron Vaughn here at the uh, Lobel House Production Studio today. That's my living room. We're, we're old friends. I haven't seen you in a long time, yeah. though. It's been, it's been, uh, it hasn't been as long as a decade, has it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably less time than that, but uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a minute. It's been enough time that we ought to catch up. Yeah. yeah. So, so what's new? What's your life like? My life? Ah, oh, it's crazy, man. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know how much you know about me. Um, I, you know, I see my family. They live in Vegas. That's where I grew up mostly. Uh-huh. Las Vegas, Nevada. So everyone's well. Um, you know, working on a bunch of different things. As uh, as is a sentence that everyone in Hollywood says. Mm-hmm. Working on a bunch of different things, bro. You are, or your family is. Uh, my family is working on a bunch of different things. I'm just over. I'm supervising it. So that's that's what I'm managing. My family. My family have, have a bunch yeah. of projects in the works right now. I I call my family my clients when I'm with them. But when I'm not with them, I call them like mom. You know, my sister. But mostly, I call them clients. What was your family life growing up, and why did your family decide to live in Vegas? Well, um, it's disjointed in many different ways, Danny. These are things I'm still learning about. Like, for instance, I met my biological father for the first time a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge thing. Yeah, I bet. Because How old are you now? I'm 36. Yeah you, yeah. you took your time on that. I Well, he was gone before I was there, you know? Yeah. So it was, I was never really curious about him mm-hmm. or who he was until I started working on myself, going to therapy and doing all these good things and realizing that there's all these holes in my childhood and like information that was just never told to me for various reasons. So I went looking for it, made a documentary about it. Really? Because that's who I am. Wow, cool. <laughs> and is that out? Is that something? It's coming can... out in April on uh-huh. Fusion. It's called Fatherless. Uh-huh. So I'm couching the story of me finding my father uh, inside the bigger discussion of fatherlessness in the black community and what is fact and what is fiction. Okay, so was the motivation for you more personal or more professional? More personal. So so the professionalism was just kind of like a shield you put up. You're like, let me make this into a movie so that I'm less emotionally attached to it. Well, not even necessarily less emotionally attached, so that way I'll go through with it. Mm-hmm. Because I, will find, I would find all sorts of excuses to avoid doing it. But if I have a bunch of people who uh, gave me a contract to sign expecting it, then I'm going to have to do it at some point. What, what was your biggest fear? With it? That you wouldn't like him? That you'd be furious with him uh, when you saw him? Honestly, my biggest fear is that he wasn't alive. I thought he was dead, maybe. you know. And then I would just always have no answers. you know, And just kind of like, oh, that's just a big you know, gap in my, my, my history and my origin story that I'll just never know. But uh, but when I found out he was alive, then my worry was that he wouldn't like me. Uh, Not that I wouldn't like him, that he would just be like, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't care for what you are or what you do or what you say. And why is that important to you? Because he wasn't there for you. Why is his opinion still so, so, so weighted in, on you? Well, um, because it would confirm other things that I think about myself you know like other emotional issues that i have that some are related to not having a father and some are related to the way my mom reacted to us just being alone you know mm-hmm. and her going through and an, a huge uh, emotional upheaval over that whole situation 
So as you're talking, I put the pieces together. Mm-hmm. That you're not, in fact, adopted. You, no. Your, your father left your mother. Your yes. mother continued to raise you. Yeah. But she didn't even know if he was alive, in other words. They didn't keep in touch. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't end well. They were young, you know, 19 and 21. So it was like she was hurt. Um, the way that the extended family reacted to it, like her parents and grandparents was not good. Mm-hmm. So it was like she was carrying a lot of anger and resentment around this whole situation. So she avoided talking about it or, you know, dealing with it as much as possible. And then she's got me, you know, like a little boy who's there with all his questions. And then I was just discouraged from asking things. That's that's the biggest thing that I realized um, is that we didn't ever talk about the past. I didn't realize that until I was an adult. Because people always have all these questions, you know, like normal questions. Like, oh, yeah, my people talk about their parents and they know where their parents grew up. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Sure. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't even know where my mom was born. Like stuff like that where I'm just, wow, I just don't have any of this information. I never thought to ask it. But maybe it was that was the energy, you know, that was the environment I was in was don't ask. So the immediate family, was there a stepfather? My stepfather came into my life when I was probably about 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's the father of my little sisters. So so you're an only child to your mother and biological father. Yes, yes. And then, and you were a product, I'm, I'm guessing, of, of just a young romance. Yeah. Not, not a marriage or something. Yes. And so your father, he freaked out and he got out of the picture? Um, yeah, I think so. It's, it's as simple as that. He kind of freaked. Um, you know, I have like my reads. My, my psychological profiles of what I think happened. What do you think happened? Well, you know, I think that he he's a military dude. Mm-hmm. Like, he was, he joined the Army, and his father was in the Army. His brothers were in the Army. So it was like that was always the plan, that he was going to join the Army. And I think that's why my mom was attracted to him, because he had a plan. He had some – he had uh, he knew where he was going, and he was consistent, uh, because she was grow, she was raised with all sorts of inconsistencies. And I think that made her a little bit of uh, an oddball in a lot of ways. What were the inconsistencies? Just like her parents got divorced. That's my grandmother and grandfather. Mm -hmm. She was shuffled back and forth from households. Um, The grandparents, her grandparents, my great-grandparents, who I actually did know, um, were very, like, conservative Southern Baptist kind of people. And, you know, so when she was pregnant with me outside of wedlock, that was an issue. That was a big deal. That was a big deal to them. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think that she had a lot of traumatic things happen to her when she was a kid. But because of Southern Baptist people, there wasn't a lot of thought in, put into it outside of, uh, you should just pray on that. You know, mm-hmm. outside of like, oh, we'll get you with therapy. You know, like, that wasn't a thing right. then, especially for black people. Like, that was just not a part of our culture. So, I think she had all these emotional things that never got addressed never got dealt with. She was invalidated her entire life. Mm -hmm. And I think that that made her a bit of an oddball in the sense that she was a country bumpkin. Where did she grow up? A little town called Tucumcari, New Mexico. Uh A very small little town, 5,000 people. And and it's gotten worse. (laughs) Like it's less and less people. We went there for the documentary. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, we grew up in an area of town where I wanna say like 80% of the houses are just boarded up sitting there now. And it's, it's one of these forgotten American cities you always hear about where it's like, no one's going to develop that. No one's going over there. It's just boards on houses, things molding and rotting, and no one's going to build anything there. You say we. So you grew up there and moved to Vegas with her? Yes. For, for the stepdad? Um, no. We, we moved there in general because of, well, that, to get back to your original question about why we went to Vegas, it's, it at the time was the fastest growing city in the United States. 
It was close to New Mexico. She didn't want to go to Albuquerque. Um, she didn't want to go to Phoenix. You know, she didn't want to go to Texas. So Vegas was a place that was uh, growing and you could find a job really easy and it was a low cost of living. It's so funny when you think of Vegas as a fast growing city. I just think of it as like it was probably a fast growing block. Like, you know, it's, in terms of city, there's like only one block of city in Vegas, right? Yeah. So I mean, like, it's <laughs> like it's, it's I mean, Vegas is a giant suburb, yeah. you know, to that point. Like there's only right. a some of some of it is a city with right, buildings. Right. Yeah. But the rest of it is just like apartments, 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 apartments. So it's like that's where we went, you know. And yeah. she knew because when a, when a casino opened in Vegas, man, that's like 5,000 jobs. It's like the fastest growing area. Yeah, <laughs> basically. And when I go back there, like stuff that was just dark desert, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's crap there now. Yeah, it's amazing. I I go out. I have friends who live in Henderson. Oh, yeah. So I, I go out there right a lot. across the street. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, is that where you're saying you grew up across from Henderson? No, I just mean that like there's not much of a to me there's not much of a distinction between Vegas and Henderson because it's mm. like you know it's like the neighborhoods in Ve- in in LA where it's like you just you drive across the street and suddenly you're in a new city. Right. Yeah. It's not like it's, there's any real division. I didn't even know there was a division when I said it. I was thinking, oh yeah, that's just a little part a suburb of Vegas. It but, probably was a neighborhood that uh-huh. that incorporated and became its own city. You know, they're like we want we want our own mayor. Yeah. And they made that movement, like West Hollywood or something, you know? Every now and then I fantasize about moving out there with my wife. To Vegas? To Henderson. Oh. Just because, like, I could own a home yes. instead of renting. I could, I could, uh, I feel like I could live the American dream. Now imagine know? being a uh, 20-year-old black woman, you know, uh, actually she would have been 28 uh-huh. when we moved there. You're a 28-year-old single mother. And there's a place that you know you can get a house and a job and make a good living without a husband. Did she work in the casinos? Yeah. What did she do? Well, first, when we got there, she worked at different uh, retail stores. You know, like she had, mm-hmm. she had I, I can't think of a time when my mom didn't have two jobs. Um, she worked at a couple different stores and then um, the Mirage opened. Mm-hmm. And that was probably 89 or 90 that that happened. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. Someone will Google it. Someone Google that. Yeah. Um, and then she got a job there, and she was working in the um, the retail warehouse, which is like all of the stuff that they sell in the Mirage mm-hmm. first goes there. They they document it, they record it, so it's like it's the place where everything is. And she was a manager there. It's the holding area. It's the holding area for all the all <laughs> the <stuff>. goods. <laughs> it's the prison where they keep those uh, those little uh, tiger dolls. If you're going to go see Siegfried and Roy, that's uh-huh. where those are. So at this point, you're going to school. You're a little kid. Yeah. I was uh, in third grade when we moved there. Okay. So it's not that little. Eh, it's small enough. I remember third grade. These are, you know, if, I it's, barely, if it's an age I can remember, then I don't yeah. feel it's too young. You yeah. barely remember it? Or? I, I remember it pretty well because I moved. Right. In the middle of the year. Like we were in New Mexico for probably a month or two before we moved to Vegas. And I moved in the middle of the year and I never forgot that because it's jarring to just show up at a school mm-hmm. that's already began. And then you're just in the class and everyone's like, who's this new, <laughs> who's that, who's uh-huh. that? So that, that's why I remember that. And I remember the early, the neighborhood that we lived in and all that stuff. Did you like it? Did you, were you resentful of the move as a kid? I was probably resentful of the move because I was moving away from everyone I knew, you know, and that I grew up with. I was resentful. My family moved from Queens to Long Island. Ha! <laughs> you're laughing, but, well, because it's not that big well, a move to you or it's what? it's much closer than New Mexico <laughs> to Vegas. Yeah. 
You could get on the Long Island Railroad and... Uh, I was so mad at my parents. I couldn't understand why we would leave New York City How old we? for Long Island. I was just about six. Oh, yeah, yeah. And my friends were in Queens. Also, I grew up in like... Like, uh, you ever hear the stories of like old Jewish tenements? Oh, yeah. Um, of like the Bronx and stuff? Oh, yeah. I, I grew up like the way like you hear stories of like World War II people growing oh, nice. up. nice. So when I was in Queens, we lived in a, I guess, I don't ever know if it's a pre-war or a post-war. I don't know what it is. I guess pre-war, uh, old apartments, uh, tenements in, in, in Flushing, Queens, where I lived there with my mom and dad. And the next building over were my grandparents. Oh, wow. And then and then the next building over, these are all buildings next to each other, and the next building over was my great-grandma. Mm. And so my great-grandma would babysit me, my grandparents would babysit me. Um, I, I used to look out the window and watch the sunset over the New York skyline. Oh, wow. And and then my little brother was born, and things started to change, and it was weird for me. And at, around the same time, my great-grandma passed away, mm. who I was very close with. Yeah. And then my parents, and then I was also very, very close with my grandparents, yeah. who who were like, I could walk over in two minutes to be at their house, and they were like, we're we're taking you away from them now, and 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 you have a brother now, and I was like, I resented the fact that I had a brother. It was never explained to me. Now he's <laughs> now, now he's my best friend, but it was never explained to me in a good As way. As a kid, yeah. yeah. I remember they showed me this video of like uh, I think it was Bar Bar the elephant, and then he has like another elephant brother, and they're going down a slide. And they're like, well, there you go. Now you have a brother. I'm like, I don't want to. Oh, I remember that, that, that cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Well, because it I didn't sounds like, like Bar Bar the Elephant. It sounds like you had a, uh, uh, you had a really close knit family unit. And I felt like it was all falling apart. Well, that makes sense, you know, yeah. especially at that age. Yeah. Because it sounds great. You know, you're close to everybody that you're related to. Perhaps that's exactly why your parents wanted to move. They're like, okay, I can't have my, I can't have my mom on my, on my ass. Let's, right. let's, let's, let's to go me, to it was Island. like the best thing in the world. Why, yeah. would we, why would we leave? Everything good is here. My friends are here. My grandparents are yeah. here. We just lost my great grandma. What are we doing? Did why they are we move leaving? for work or something? No, I think it's because of what you said. I think they just wanted to. My dad grew up in that same tenement. He mm. he wanted to get on his own something two feet and like yeah. you know. It's like you know if you still lived where you grew up, you know. See, that's a that's a that's an interesting thing. I was actually talking to my friend last night about this exact thing. Like, I feel like the '80s is where it became normalized for people to just move for work for school. Before that, you just you lived around the people that you knew your entire life. Mm -hmm. You had a sense of community in some sort of way, whether you liked it or not. Right. You knew your neighbors. Your family was down the street. Everybody kind of looked out for each other. And that is not a thing that really exists much anymore. Mm -hmm. People move to neighborhoods. They don't move to communities. Yeah. They move to a city and go, oh, Los Angeles, where do I want to live? Uh, I want to live in Culver City. But they don't know anyone in Culver City. And that's why I'm still very community-like. Oriented, I, mm. I belong to the synagogue here. Hey, I love a community. I like you know, and then like the comedy community. For a long time, I try to make that my community. Yeah, but it's not a real community. Yeah. and I and I would get like hurt by it. And you know, our friend Liz Mealy. Yeah, she was on this podcast, and she put it to me so well. Oh, uh, a while ago, but she said, "Oh yeah, I never look at." comedians as like my community i just look at them as co-workers like mm. i was like well that's the healthy way to do it <laughs> yeah i mean i i i don't know about that because it, it's healthy in the sense that you can you can kind of um you know disconnect from the the i guess the emotional ties you know like getting hurt yeah but at the same time it's like i don't what's wrong with that that and i think that that's actually part of quote unquote how they quote unquote they uh -huh. um 
control us. There's this disconnect. There's a there's always an element of competition in the comedy community uh -huh. that if someone gets something, I'm not going to get something. Uh -huh. It's really hard for us to um, cherish, I guess, a way and appreciate our coworkers. Yeah. And if we see them as coworkers, then that means that someone else is going to get the promotion over me. And that's kind of like the way that we we treat each other. Interesting. Um, I, at least when I was coming up, I felt like there was a big disconnect. Like the older comics always seemed like they were so damn close. And I never understood why the people in my level were not right. close. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with the fact that we don't, we don't have mentors in a sort of a way. Like I kind of think of like the older comics that I was close to. Like nobody really took me on the road. I would get some advice here and there. But yeah. they were so, you know, they were concerned with their own thing. Like trying to get their own careers going, which I can't fault them for that. Sure, yeah. And they felt... You know, they all felt like, well, where do I belong? You know, what's my place? Yeah. And so there's not a clear, there's not a one linear path to becoming a successful comic. Those older comics, they they grew up in communities that perhaps they didn't leave from. So when they meet each other, there's a, there's already a connection there. Like, you grew up in Brooklyn? I grew up in Brooklyn. Like, there's yeah. a, and they know what part of Brooklyn. They always have friends in common. And so we tended to not have that as much mm -hmm. we were i think people of our generation you know like like i say i keep saying child of the 80s you know like we were kind of taken away from those communities and, and disconnected from each other and then we also had tv so it was like i was very much raised by cable in a lot of ways name of my first album <laughs> name drop <laughs> um but it's also like when I came to comedy, and I think that comedy I will see is the great equalizer in a lot of ways. Everybody's got to start at an open mic, and you got to find your own way. And everyone comes from all these different walks of life, different, different backgrounds, different jobs, different you know fields of study, and then everyone's bringing all that into comedy. So comedy is almost like a giant you know dumping ground for everyone's ideas of how they think things should go. Mm -hmm. And everyone's constantly setting themselves up for disappointment. <laughs> and then we're disconnected from each other. So we don't, you know, I think it, when we get older, you know, we can we try to find those communities again. But like when you're starting out, you know, it's it's really hard, especially because the older comics, they're like, they're suspicious of you until they know for a fact that you're funny. <laughs> yeah. you I know? told a friend of mine, like, uh, who, who's who's funny and and but not known mm -hmm. um, for being funny yet because he's still so young. Right. Uh, and and he would go up to these older comics and try to like rap with them because uh, he knows he's funny and he knows they're funny, but it wasn't working out because they don't know that he's funny. Yeah, exactly. And I told him it's like the most frustrating thing to be at that point because it's like you have like a superhero right your power right like you're right. you're like let's say you're you're Batman. Okay. Okay. Now you're you're Batman. You've got some powers, but now you're going up to Superman. He's got a lot more powers, right? <laughs> right? Okay. But you're going up as Bruce Wayne and you're just like, hey, let's talk shop. Huh? Okay. But they don't even know that you're Batman. Like they <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, yeah. <laughs> they just see some guy and then Who's this guy trying to talk to you? What, what is your, who, who are you? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, you know, it's real tough protecting the city, right? And they're like, Yeah, okay. Yeah. Go do your thing, sir. <laughs> because there's always people showing up to this community. Yeah. And they're like, I don't know if you're one of... Are you with the Justice League? What's Who are you? What's going on? Why are you talking to me like you're in the Justice League? Yeah. But, That's but, funny. But yeah, it is easy, like, um, going back to, to sort of feel... Well, it was for me to sort of feel hurt because I was like... 
I got into it so young and I was like, well, these people are my friends, right? Com- right. Comics are my friends. But then um, it's a different kind of friendship. Like, for yeah. instance, I, I consider you a friend, but we opened this podcast by saying we might not have even talked in 10 years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so exactly. It's not exactly the same kind of friendship that you, you may. But it's uh, the idea of, in a way, like a fraternity. Like, yeah. I, we have done shows together. And like, so when I see you, when I heard you, when I was like, oh, you're going to do Danny LaBelle's podcast. I'm like, oh, Danny, I know Danny. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, there's, I have a trust immediately. Right. Just from seeing your name on a, on my screen, you know? Yeah. But like somebody else, you know, I've done some other podcasts where I'm like, <laughs> I don't know that person. Who's yeah. that? <laughs> right, right. You know? So it's like, but we've been doing it for so long. We've been in it for so long that when I see a name that I, I recognize, then it's, there's a familiarity there. So it's like. Yeah, and I guess that's the that's the tricky thing about it is is how do you find that familiarity? You know, mm-hmm. how do you find that community? Community is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, because I also think that it speaks to the bigger issues that are happening in the country, the the bigger disconnect, if you will. I think I know where you're going with it, but yeah. I'll, but I'll ask you to clarify. Okay, well, you know, it it there's an erosion of the skill set of being able to talk to people that aren't exactly like you. That aren't that That's you can't you easily yeah. identify as part of your community. The bubbles is what I was. Th- the same, bubbles, same thing. And but, I'm and yeah. I'm and I'm I'm suspicious and aware of the bubbles in all sorts of of ways and all ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it be conservative or whether it be liberal. And there's a lot of finger pointing and a lot of blaming and a lot of shut up. You're ruining the country, and that as much as every everyone's right. And everyone's wrong at the exact same time. Yeah. And wouldn't it be nice if everything was black and white and not complex in a way that is actually really hard to understand? Yeah. That's not the case. Things are are complicated, and and a lot of us do not have the language to to talk about it. You know. Right. But we do have anger. You know. <laughs> we do have hurt, and it, we can talk to that. It takes a lot of work to see the 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 gray and not the black and white of the world. Absolutely. You know? uh, I remember. Yeah, I grew up uh, religious, religious Jew, mm-hmm. and then I broke away from it for personal resentments that I this rabbi upset me, that person, that school. You oh, know? interesting. Okay. For over a decade, I I was uh, completely dis- disattached to it all, and when I um, met my wife and she she decided she wanted to convert to be Jewish, it brought up everything for me. You mm-hmm. know, it was like a big deal, and and it, and the big question for me was like, well, let me figure out this thing in a black and white sense like is religion just complete bullshit okay and and if so like let me just dismiss it all right now and get and move forward with my life or is uh or is it all you know completely real in which case maybe i should just be focused on that mm. and i couldn't understand like how to live in the gray like i was just yeah. like i was like well either like everybody's like worshiping dragons and that's nonsense <laughs> okay you know yeah, yeah. And, and and like and this should be like the number one thing we're all talking about in the world. Like, why are there a ton of people like studying wizardry when it's nonsense? <laughs> Adults, yeah. you know? Yeah, and, that's and funny. I'm, <laughs> I was just think this should be like the like nobody should talk about anything until we figure out this. Like, right? You know? And then of course there's so much more textured and nuanced. And I found uh, wound up finding many things I love about it. And 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 now I'm I feel like I'm in a good kind of middle ground where I'm able to sort of exist in both worlds. But for a very long time, I grew up in, in, a, in like all this way. And then when I left it, I was like all the other way. Yeah. And and 
it really took a lot of work to live in the gray areas for me. Yeah, that's that. I had a similar experience, you know, because we we like I was raised Southern Baptist, and you know, I think we were. I was really involved in the church when I was younger, but I also didn't have any option. Like I was five, so it's like <laughs> yeah. I'm going to church whether I liked it or not, and I was drawn to a lot of the ideas, but also was like, well, some of these things don't make any sense. But you know what I really liked? Mm-hmm. The preacher is what I liked. There's a guy on stage right now yeah. making this audience laugh. And essentially, that's what I wanted to become. Preachers, rabbis, comics, all the same. It's, we're, we're, you know, that's why, I, that's why I can get down with, the, with this podcast. Because it's like, I look at a comic as somebody that is a part-time philosopher, psychologist, sociologist, right. anthropologist. Do we have any formal education? No, not necessarily. Uh-huh. Some of us do, some of us don't. But also, sometimes formal education, I think, is the exact kind of thing that can destroy your actual thinking. Because now you have a way that you were told by an institution is correct. Mm-hmm. And then you can become really addicted to being correct as opposed to actual thinking. And you live in an insular community where everybody is validating this correctness. So if you say it's not correct, you're going against everybody you love, yes. all your friends. Yes. It's very tough to be in that situation. Yeah. Um, it's an emo- it's emotionally draining. Right. And it's complex and you want to be liked. You know, if you're <laughs> if if you're insecure, you know, right. you want to be like, oh no, no, I please 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 let me be part of the community. Here. Right, right. Um so yeah, I mean I think that that is it's a similar thing for me that when we left Vegas, you know, because I think my mom was really hurt by a lot of things that happened in the church or people that were church people. When you left Vegas, you're saying? I mean, uh, when we left New Mexico okay, and right. we left for Vegas. Okay. Um, we didn't go to church. That was the end of it. So we, we kind of, that was the end of our, our, our thing. And I, as an adult, have come back to it, not necessarily Christianity, Southern Baptist Christianity, but just some sort of spiritual practice. And I'm mm-hmm. and thinking through, well, what is it that I believe in and what is it that i want to you know worship or dedicate myself to and you know you don't have to agree with every single thing Mm -hmm. you can find a community that is that that aligns with what your beliefs are more or less more or less and and also like i miss the community aspect of it sure it's ingrained in the fiber of who who you are you know i found that too i felt like i was missing a big part of myself but i was also so hesitant to go anywhere near it you know Mm. Because yeah. you were hurt before. Yeah. You know what? And you're like, never again, deep down. <laughs> but that's interesting, knowing that you grew up in that, that situation, a close-knit family, and then like going to a synagogue that was really, so it's like, it's oh, interesting. It, it all changed. I mean, when we grew up, uh, when I was in Queens, we went to synagogue sometimes. It was like, everything changed. It was, my life got shifted around in such a weird way. We went from not being such a religious family and living around uh, my great-grandmother who was completely secular mm. and my grandparents who were secular mm. and my father was raised secular my mother is from scotland and her, oh. her mother is a holocaust survivor oh, and so she has this eastern european judaism which is more religious but still uh, looking at it now and n- not that religious uh, and then we moved to long island where the local school was very religious, mm. the local synagogue was very religious, and my parents were like, okay, let's fit in with this now. So now we're a very religious family. Mm. So now everything is changed, you know? Interesting, uh, yeah. It, it, was, it was very weird. It was, a, it, was, um, it was a tough time for me. It was a tough transition. And then, you know. And it leaves its imprint. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things that make you a comic. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the things... <laughs> So I want to I want to talk a little more about this documentary because okay. I'm fascinated by it. But 
Well, we didn't get you. So you said you 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 made the documentary yeah. in a broader way about uh, black fathers in general. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about um, those things because you know I uh, am a person who uh, I guess I'm obsessed with identity. I think a lot of black people are because we're obsessed with authenticity because we have been kidnapped you know and mm -hmm. taken to another place and families separated it's it's the giant leftover scar if you will from the institution of slavery and the institutions of, so it's like we're always kind of um looking for truth yeah in ourselves looking for truth in our communities looking for truth in our belief systems so black people are obsessed with what black is and i was as well and especially because i was a little nerdy kid without a dad, which is a very common experience supposedly in the black community. But since I didn't have a male model to model myself off of, mm -hmm. I kind of just was winging it. So with a lot of the little the little boys that I grew up around, I didn't fit in with them. You know, it's funny just because you removed the word role from model, I, it took me immediately to like Zoolander when you said I didn't have a male model to. I go didn't off. have a male model. <laughs> I didn't have a male model to blue steel. You know what I mean? No, we all have idea. to base our identity off a male model. Yeah, just no Tyrese. Did yeah. I have a Ty Tyrese or Tyson Beckford to look up to? It's all it took was removing the word role from role model. All right, role model. Let's yeah. get back to that. Sorry, go for it. No, well, you know, I didn't have a role model. Yeah. Um. So I didn't have. But what I actually, who I modeled myself after was com comics. Mm -hmm. You know, seeing Pryor and and uh, uh, Robert Townsend and Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence and all these comedians on screen, like so, that was an example of a black man that I felt I could be, that made me laugh and seemed to be loved and liked, and I thought that was you know good for me. Yeah, and so that was going to be more than being a basketball player or a rapper. Yeah. You know, the other examples that were afforded to me, I felt like that was the one where I kind of moved towards it. But I also was into a lot of things that black people weren't normally into. So I was folding that into my identity, folding that into my comedy, folding that into who In, I was. Into all things the time. like what? Um, like what? Um, theater. That's a big thing. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I was into i went to a performing arts high school in vegas so i was always kind of headed that direction my grandmother was very concerned about education so she actually taught me to write cursive when i was in kindergarten and i had a reading level that was always beyond everyone that was around me so mm -hmm. like i had a what, 11th grade le reading level in fifth grade so it was like that kind of separated me in a, in a way and it's interesting too because there's a thing about um exceptionalism that happens where you are made you become an example for a teacher to shame all the other black kids in your class that oh baron did this and baron can read and baron did this homework and baron got an a and then i become the example that every other kid in the class is being shamed of not being and like that it. isolates you and it, it separates me and it isolates me and that's where the bullying starts oh. that's where the he's acting white did you have to play down your intelligence then oh definitely definitely oh i ruined my own grades on purpose in order to fit in i was like no i'm not gonna i didn't want to stick out you know so i i kind of just i went more the, the tried to become invisible in a way uh -huh. and fit in and just you know be under the radar especially because it was like my neighborhood was rough it it wasn't compton you know it wasn't 
like that. But like kids had guns, you know, kids had mm-hmm. knives. People were bringing weapons to school. There were gangs. You know, there were there wasn't murder every day, but every week. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. a weird thing to say. <laughs> um, so it's like I also didn't want to get killed or beat up mm. because that anger, you know, that a lot of kids felt is real. And then I became the object of a lot of that anger because they were being told they should be like me. Mm-hmm. And um, that was not good. You know, that, that's why I look back and I go like, oh, damn. So it's like I tried to figure out ways to, to, to not be exceptional and to not stick out. So you had this incredibly isolated childhood. Like, first you got removed from your whole world yeah. in New Mexico. Yeah. Isolated to Las Vegas. Yeah. Now in Las Vegas, your mom is working all the time. Yeah. You're an only child. Mm-hmm. You don't. Your dad isn't in the picture. You're isolated in that way. You go to school. You're isolated from the other kids. Yes. Because uh, your education level, and so you must. You must have been incredibly alone. Was it a big thing when your mom got remarried? Did that? Um. I mean, my best friend, if you will, was TV. Uh, you know, latchkey kid, common you know thing. So it was like. We couldn't afford it. Mom couldn't afford a babysitter. And, you know, and I would get home at three and she wasn't going to be home till six. So it was like, mm-hmm. babysit yourself. And I was watching cable. I was watching TV. Um, and then my stepfather and I, he, yeah, he came about 11, 12, something like that. And uh, we never really jived. You know, we never really mm-hmm. got along. And, um, and then my sisters were born. I was probably 13 when they were born. So then suddenly in high school, I was, I was the babysitter. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was like a lot of social things that a normal high schooler would try to do. I couldn't because I had to go take care of my sisters after school. Tell me about this. Your stepdad. What, what did he do and how did he come into the picture? Um, it's a blur in a lot of ways. Like, I just feel like suddenly he was there. I remember my mom dating. I remember other dudes that were around before him mm-hmm. that were showing up consistently, you know, um, and... I now understand as a single mother, you know, it was a very important thing to her to be like, hey, I got a son. You know, if you're not cool with that, we can't see each other. If my son doesn't like you, we can't see each other. So there were guys that I met. I remember meeting and and, it, and I now can read that like it was important to my mom for, for me to meet this dude. Yeah. Um, and I can only remember like maybe two or three guys over like um, 10 years almost basically before my stepdad came into the picture. Uh-huh. Um, and it felt like I almost remember it like I went on a trip and I came home and some guy was living with us. And I was like, who is this dude? <laughs> and it was that jarring to me that suddenly this dude was in my life and my mom was saying, you should call him dad. And I was like, what? What is happening? I don't know who he is. I don't even what you. These other dudes had to go through this gauntlet. Yeah. And I was the final boss. <laughs> You yeah. know, I was freaking Gordo or, yeah. or, or uh, not Gordo. I, I um, I'm trying to think of the more combat. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I was Shao Kahn. Uh, yeah. But like now suddenly this dude was in my life and I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to deal with this. And we got along at first. But then like, I don't exactly know a lot about him. He seemed to he to have grown up very wealthy and he was wealthy when he was younger, like mm-hmm. in his 20s. But then he mismanaged all of his money. And uh, when he came to our, our lives, I want to say he was like a cab driver and a pizza delivery man at the same time. Those were like his jobs. Mm-hmm. But he had this resentment about being where he was as opposed to where he used to be. At one point, he was a millionaire real estate dude. Mm-hmm. And um, he grew up pretty privileged. Like he's a, he's a white dude, Republican, 
which didn't become an issue, wasn't an issue at first uh-huh. until we, we got older and until the country started to change post Clinton, you know, that was like, oh, okay, so we got this Bush dude and then 9-11 happens and then it was like, my mom and my stepfather are not in the same political uh-huh. sphere. And it wasn't an issue up until that moment. And it was an issue to me because by then I was in college, I was coming back to Vegas to visit mm-hmm. and just getting into arguments with him about politics all of the time. Because I was in Boston, you know, I was, I was doing theater school and, you know, being yeah. whatever I'm gonna be. And so we just never really jived in a lot of ways. And I just kind of, I think we almost like, we just tolerated each other for the sake of my mom. Is he, they're not still together? No, Okay. they're separated now. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I'm picking up on that by the past tense, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's unless true. things just ter- took a turn and then we didn't get along. But now we get along great. But, yeah, you know, uh, and he was also my my yeah. little sisters. He's their father, mm-hmm. so that was another thing. Like I love my sisters, so I wasn't going to again. I was tolerating him right. because he was their dad, and I wasn't gonna, you know, I guess in a sort of a way like basically be telling them that their dad's a piece of shit all the time, right. you know, because that's not for me to do. That's for them to find out in their own way if that's what they're going to find out. Um, but, you know, we just we just never jived in a lot of different ways. And, you know, he, he kind of, in a, in a lot of ways, is the perfect uh, portrait of what I would believe a Trump supporter to be. Mm-hmm. Like someone who is angry that their whiteness is not working. <laughs> <laughs> That's ba- that they have the superpower, <laughs> and that it's not working. It's not working anymore. So it must be these Mexicans. It must be these black people, which is yeah. weird because he married a black woman. You know, so yeah, it's that, kind of that's like, the, where it seems almost inconsistent there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, it, it's your your whole childhood is just like uh, it's it's quite a it's quite a crazy story because <laughs> <laughs> I'll even tell you about I, my grandma. My grandma was there the entire time. Really? It was me, my mom, and my grandma. So she moved to Vegas with you both? My grandmother was the reason we went to Vegas because she was kind of already there. See, these are other things I didn't learn until in the last couple of years that my mom actually did grow up in Vegas when mm-hmm. she, she went to high school in Vegas. I didn't even know that. It, Vegas always appeared to be a random choice to me. Uh-huh. I didn't understand that we had any sort of connection to Vegas at all. So my mom would go to school in Vegas and then spend her summers in New Mexico. That's what I found out. And then um, my grandmother was there. She was already working. So we moved to Vegas. It was me and my mom. And then at some point, my grandma moved in with us, which was another thing. Because then my mom, I think, felt her mom was in her face and was in her ear Mm -hmm. and was trying to raise her still and was trying to raise her son at the same time. So there was this like three generations in one house and as opposed to working like in in a kind of what sounds like your situation where it was like everyone was getting along. In a way, you know, we, we still don't know exactly why your parents moved, mm-hmm. and maybe we'll never know. You know, we can just guess at it unless you, unless they told I you. I could ask them. That's true. <laughs> but even if you ask somebody a direct question, yeah, they might not. They might be like, that's "Oh true. well, we thought there was more strawberries where yeah. we were gonna go." It's like mm, that doesn't sound real. Um, so my grandmother was a big part of my life growing up as well, and we even shared a bedroom, like a bunk bed, in in high school. Uh-huh. You know, I had the top bunk because I'm the coolest. So when your stepfather moved in, she was still living there too? Yeah, and they did not get along. Oh, that was boy. another piece of the dynamic that my grandmother, because my grandmother was the person, the person yeah. that was good with money in our family. Uh-huh. My mom was not good with money. My stepfather was not good with money. Right. My grandmother was good with money. She, and we lived in Vegas. 
She'd gamble, but she didn't have a gambling problem. She mm-hmm. knew she had a discipline at it. She's like, okay, I got paid. Gonna go gamble $20. Because if I lose $20, I cannot have $20. Yes. But it, yeah. Oh yeah, and my stepfather had a gambling problem. So it's like, he, and he lived in Vegas. Ugh. So it's like, if an alcoholic moved to beer, that's basically <laughs> what it was. Moved to beer. Moved to beer. I live inside <laughs> of beer now. Um, he, he entered a tough situation too, because uh, it sounds like he was lodged between, like you and your mom were a thing. Yeah. And it almost feels like when you tell the story that he was there to replace you one day, you're like, What's going on? I thought I was the guy in this household. Well, here's the other thing, Danny, that I've kind of glossed over a little bit. Uh, My mom was not having a good time in my childhood. So it was like there was some abuse. There was some addiction stuff Mm -hmm. because of what I now know is like deep pain from her past that was never addressed. Mm -hmm. And so she was in this very high pressure situation and sought to medicate herself. And it was being taken out on you. It was being taken out on me. And I think my stepfather also in some ways was a piece of that, a piece of needing this protection or needing a partner to help her get through this thing. And I think my grandmother could see through that. Now, where my grandmother was blocked is I think that she looked at it in a sort of a way like she fucked up in her situation with her daughter. And now she's going to fix it with her grandson. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of the dynamic was crazy because my mom was going through her emotional problems. My grandmother was constantly invalidating her. My stepfather was just there to like stoke the fire of my mom's (laughs) anger. And I'm just, and I'm just a kid. Sounds like a sitcom. And I'm going to high school. I'm going to middle school with kids that have guns and knives that don't like that. I can read better than them. And there's all this pressure on you, like because of that. And like, you're always the example. Your grandma's going to make the example of of you of like, this is how you raise a kid. Yeah. And then the teachers are going to be like, this is how you raise a student. Yes. So you're always, you're always stuck being this example. Yeah. And then for my mom, like I was an example of, she was paranoid about me being a fuck up in some sort of way or, or, you know, like, so there was this constant kind of um, pressure to have, be correct in yeah. a way. She hated, like, my room was always a mess. So it was like, there was always some fight. It that sounds was like happening. you had, like, no room to breathe. Basically. Yeah. And I, I shared a room with my grandma. <laughs> I shared a room with my grandma. Had no room to breathe. I really had no room to breathe. Yeah. And, and I was talking to my girlfriend about this the other day, like, because I'm learning a lot about my relationship to time. Mm-hmm. And some of it comes from some trauma when I was a kid. Here's the thing that I learned. High school started at 7 a.m., okay? I learned pretty quickly that 6 a.m. was not early enough, 5.30 a.m. was not early enough, 5 o'clock a.m. was not early enough. The only time I knew, if I woke up at 4.30 a.m., that's the only time I could wake up that I knew I would make it to school on time. So I started waking up at 4.30 to get ready for school every morning. Why? Because that's the only way I could do it, man. The bus was at 6.25, Mm -hmm. and it was a 30-minute walk to the bus. So I had to be out the door at 5.50 if I wanted to make it. And waking up at five didn't get, because I was moving so slow because it was the morning, mm-hmm. and I get in the shower, and I don't know if you know this about showers, they're awesome. <laughs> yeah. The water is warm, I'm already half asleep, Yeah, and then I'm essentially walking into a womb. It's a wet blanket. It's just like, it was. I would fall asleep in the shower, standing up in the shower a lot, because yeah. it was so warm, and I was like, oh, God, this is exactly what I needed. And then I would move slowly because I would take long showers because it was so relaxing. Mm -hmm. And then I would get out the door. But the thing is that my parents were working, of course, because they were adults, but they were asleep and they had to be up at, 
be to work at nine. So they were waking up, they were trying to sleep up until the last possible minute. So me moving around in the morning was a burden. Mm -hmm. Me moving around in the morning was in the way of them getting sleep, so be quiet. You know, and I only just now realized, because my girlfriend brought this up, that some parents, they like take their kids to school. <laughs> I saw it in movies and I was like, oh, what? and I didn't understand. Like yeah. some parents will wake up, make their kids breakfast and take their kids to school. Doesn't matter how early it is. Doesn't right. matter if it's going to mess up their sleep schedule. And I was just in the way of my parents getting sleep and they swore that I was slamming the doors in the morning. Uh -huh. So they took the doorknobs off my bedroom. And they took the doorknobs off the bathroom that I used. So I had literally no privacy. <laughs> no privacy. And my mom would walk into the bathroom oh, all the man. time if she thought I was in there too long. I'd be literally trying to take a dump and she'd just walk in. Really, what are you doing in here? I'm you like, really, oh. You really had nowhere to go. Nowhere yeah. to go, man. Wow. That's why I got boundary issues. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. everybody had boundary issues. Makes sense. Well, how has it really affected your relationship to time now? Well, because I realized that what I, I resent, I resented having to get up. I uh -huh. resented having to be so, because even if I was late to school, uh -huh. there was always this racial baggage of like, mm -hmm, black, late, black mm -hmm. people are late. It is, a, it is, it's not out of nowhere. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you this. I've had, you know, a number of black guests on my different shows uh -huh. and uh, it's almost become a joke with me and my wife. I'm like, all right, so we'll tell them this time, but they'll be here in like an hour. But it's oh. not to be, it's not to be racist. It's just honest to God. That's what, how it goes. Well, you know, here's the other you thing know? about time. Um, who invented it? Exactly. This is a philosophical discussion now. Uh -huh. yeah. Time, as we use it as a country, is something that white men invented because white men were running this country. So they created the system of time and scheduling that everybody uses. So every minority, every woman is it compared to a white male standard of keeping time. So is it a rebellion against white people to not well, be on time? No, it's, it's, it's not even necessarily that as much as we um, are being told because we're not keeping time like a white person that something is wrong with us. Uh -huh. And then if you're constantly being told something is wrong with you because you can't keep my standard, Mm -hmm. It becomes internalized in some sort of way. It's so interesting. I never thought of time as a white thing. Well, it's it's who run, if you think about who ran this country, who is it that created the clocks and was saying things have to be done at this exact time? It's always been white men. That's just the fact of this country. But what was interesting is you when you when you were coming here today, you called me and you're like you were going to be 7 minutes late, which yeah. I thought was Unusual for anybody to, to, to tell me such a, first of all, specific time in L.A., yeah. if, if anybody's like up to 15 minutes late, nobody even says anything. But to be, you're like, I will be seven minutes late. I was like, wow, this I've guy been, is professional. I've been yelled uh, at <laughs> so for my entire, here's the thing, because it's like, okay, so this is a, this is a, this is where I started to think about this time stuff. Because, uh, so my girlfriend's friend who, um, uh, grew up pretty wealthy, right? Mm -hmm. I guess her parents or parents' family or somebody, they have this daughter who is late all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And these are white people as well. I should say that. So that way there's no race, quote unquote racial baggage, right? Mm -hmm. But they yell at her, they yell at their daughter for being late. Mm -hmm. She gets to school late and that's a tardy. That's, a, that's an established thing around every single school in this country. Tardiness is an issue. Mm -hmm. Children get yelled at when they're late. I have a problem with being late. Yeah? Yeah. Why is that? 
I don't know. I've been trying. To... <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let because, me because white people. <laughs> let me put this. Well, let me put it to you this way. This is, I always this feel is... like I could do that too as a Jew. But... You can. Because uh, Jewish people weren't white until what the sixties? I, I still don't feel white. You know, I have a friend who's uh, a, a comic who's a southern white guy, and I always, I, I talk about white people. He's like, "You are white." I'm like, "I'm not white." See, but, but it's another example of how whiteness is an illusion mm-hmm. because it's essentially like every decade, white people have uh, basically uh, christened a new group of people white. Yeah, to for numbers. Irish. Yeah. We used we used to have signs that said no Irish apply, but right. you're white now. Great. Uh Italians. Okay. You're white now. We need you. Jewish people, you're also white now. You're, you're white until we decide we're going to get rid of you. And it basically it's a, it's <laughs> a system of white. indoctrination. Mm-hmm. It's like you are being told you are now the controlling class of this country mm-hmm. and you have the rights and privileges of that because there's safety in numbers, my friend. Yeah. So it's like, uh, that's, and that's one of the examples. But okay, so back to the other thing. Um, well, my, so my, my friend was telling my girlfriend, like, can you believe this girl is late all the time? And my girlfriend's reaction was, she's a child. She has no control over any of her transportation. Yeah. She's counting on her parents or a school bus to get her to school. Yeah. Like, she literally has no control over her. Like, why is she being made responsible for something that literally is not her fault in mm-hmm. a way. And I was like, oh, wait. And then I thought of that thing about like how parents take their their kids to school. And I'm like, oh, wow, that that's right. That I was being yelled at for being late all the time, but no one at school knew I was waking up at 4.30 in the morning to get to get to school, that my parents took the doorknobs off my door because they swore I was slamming the doors. I was interrupting their more important sleep. Me going to school was in the way of them going to work. It wasn't school was something I need to do and I support you. It mm-hmm. was, shut up, you're being too loud. <laughs> My sleep is more important than your sleep. Yeah, We're taking the doorknobs off your door. You were basically an equal in, in, the, in the household who wasn't paying the bills. And I think that tardiness yeah, is the like, first way that we, we kind of start to indoctrinate our children with a, some sort of sense of time and sense of schedule. We're essentially giving them a way of thinking about time that will help them all, we think, be a worker once they're out of school. And it, yeah, it feels like it feels like an indoctrination into adulthood. It so, is, yeah. and that, and then the only way that we know to to, to react to children being late is to yell at them. Yeah, and uh, I, I we got to get into the philosophy. Let's do it. But uh, man, there's a lot there. I could I could do another hour on time with you. Yeah, that, I, that's my bad time. <laughs> that they that, that bad timing. It's not the time. It's not the time for it. <laughs> it's not the, not time the time for it. That is, it does feel like somebody else's power. Like, don't tell me what the time is for it. It's like, no, I control what the time is for it. Yeah, we all are like actively being oppressed <laughs> by clocks that we're constantly Getting checking. Sucked at all in times. again, but it's so good. It's such a rich topic. It is. Um, yeah, and I also feel like I have like a little microcosm of the black experience hey. talking to you because not just from the time perspective, but just how you were talking about how your identity um, goes back to the larger black identity of sort of being ripped away from your family and yes. ripped away from your village. And that is exactly what I was telling you about what happened to me. Okay, <laughs> sure, I wasn't ripped away <laughs> in such a traumatic way. Sure, my people came here by choice, but uh, <laughs> it's so No, what, what I meant, like, you know, when my parents moved me away from my family and mm. moved me away from my grandparents. And it was jarring. It was jarring. It was like this, it was like this, you know, why are we here now? Okay, sure. It's a stretch to compare it to slavery, 
but but I I do. It's the beginning of being able to kind of understand right. how traumatic that is mm-hmm. to be kidnapped from a country, taken to a new place with your family, then separated from your family and your language, and your and your beliefs. And and so you your life kind of like relived history. I think black every, history. I think everyone is every black person is trying to live down that history still. Because I mean, it's your, so your, embedded. Your story repeats, like from mm. New Mexico to Vegas. It's like a mini repetition well, I, of being I, ripped away from your family, being ripped away from everybody. And, and I think it's because everybody's trying to find themselves. Like my yeah. mom's trying to find herself. I, and I think that's the biggest thing that most black. That's why I say when I black people are obsessed with authenticity, we're all trying to find ourselves in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like black male identity, what it means to be a black man where I'm being told by other black kids that I'm acting white, but if I walk into a 7-Eleven, like the person is gonna be following me with their eyes, and if my hands glide over something, the police might be called. You know, the police don't know that I I can read really well. You know? If I get pulled over, I'm like, let me recite some Shakespeare to you, sir. Like, uh, that's not gonna matter, you know? Yeah. I wonder if, like, uh, if you were walked around the Seven Eleven reciting Shakespeare as a defense mechanism to begin with. Yes, then someone's <laughs> like, doo, 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 doo. "Yeah, there's some crazy nigga in here just <laughs> spouting Hamlet. Get down here right and right away. He can't be well." In the background, I die, Horatio, <laughs> and may angels sing thee to thy rest. Okay, so Alex picked out someone for you named uh, Simone de. Beauvoir. Beauvoir. Yeah, Simone de Beauvoir. You're familiar with her. I am a little bit, yeah. Okay. She's interesting. Really, really interesting. Um, I'm I'm not. So I'm coming. I I don't know anything about her. What do you know before I even uh, look into her? She was, um, she would be considered, I guess, an existentialist. Mm -hmm. She was the long-term partner of Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, Uh, That's where I've heard the name. Yeah. And... there's a famous book that's like their love letters between between each other. Um, some people say that she uh, defined what existentialism is more than any other person, um, including her partner. How? Um, because she because there were there were um, uh, questions <laughs> that a lot of people had that she was able to answer better in lectures and other essays that she. She wrote. So they were um, like competing existentialists. I don't know if know. they were com- they were competing. I wonder I, if it was like comics. <laughs> They're like, oh, I got something so existential. Well, as far as I understand it, like it, it's interesting when people show up with a quote unquote new philosophy mm-hmm. to to say I be- I have an idea that's this thing that applies to this time. It's weird for it to be christened, you know, like, so it's like there's always people at the beginning of an idea, like, we're the existentialists, and there's Johnny, and there's Simone, and there's <laughs> Albert, and there's Sammy, and then they all kind of, like, have an idea, you know, of, of their style or, or what that is, and I think everyone has different different shit. Like, I'm well-read in the sense that I've read the first chapter of thousands of books. Well, you, <laughs> you, you've, you've read a lot more than I have, then. Okay, so, S- Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah, that's right. How, the way you say it, sure, more or less. She she lived from January 9th, nineteen oh eight, to April fourteenth, nineteen eighty six. Oh wow! So we had yeah. a few years when we were both uh, sharing the planet. Yeah. Uh, she was a French writer, an intellectual, an existentialist philosopher, as you said, a political activist, a feminist, and a social theorist. Mm-hmm. And though she did not consider herself a philosopher, she had a significant influence on both feminist existentialism and feminist theory. 
Mm -hmm. Wow, I bet a lot of your work is going around right now. It is. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I've been seeing people post articles of things that she wrote. A detailed analysis of women's oppression and a foundational tract of contemporary feminism. And for her novels, including She Came to Stay and The Mandarins. She was also known for her lifelong open relationship with French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. Yeah. I would guess she would be not a Trump supporter. (laughs) No. Well, you know, that's the other thing is that these French, like... The existentialists, because I kind of got into them a little, because Jean-Paul uh-huh. Sartre wrote a play called No Exit. Right. It's kind of a, a little bit of a popular play. And he was considered in this group of people and writers that are like, um, they were these post-World War II people, because there was a lot of art that was coming out of that era that was very um, absurd mm-hmm. and dark because we had just had a world war. So people were like, what are we? Yeah. That, was the, that was the feeling in the world at that time, especially in Europe, where it was just kind of like, why did we, so some guy just killed a lot of people, like millions of people. What, what the hell does that mean humanity is, that we could, yeah. we could sit by and watch this happen, that we could, you know, that it got to the point where it happened, and then when it happened, that we had to kill each other to stop it from happening. Mm-hmm. What? What the hell? What the hell? And I think everybody was kind of in the grips of that feeling and those ideas, yeah. and hence all of these different ideas and pieces of art came out of that time. So it's very dark in some ways, and some people see it very um, depressing. I think a lot of people look at existentialism as, a, as being really depressing, and then on the other end, some people look at it being really, really positive yeah. and optimistic. So people can't even agree. Yeah, interesting. I, I always thought of it as positive. Well, it means what does it mean to exist, right? Yeah. They're trying to ask that big religious question, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I guess every philosophy is is at trying to answer the question, why? Yeah. You know, in the, what's the deal? Is, is the comic <laughs> version, of, is the comedian version of that question. What's the deal? <laughs> what's the deal as a philosophical question? As a philosophical question, yeah. <laughs> what's the deal? Yeah, so that's as much as I can say about, um, I can talk at, you know, in like concept, conceptually about what I remember existentialism being. Yeah. Did you find it depressing or did you find it enlightening? I found it enlightening. It's sort of like the, okay, how about this? It's like people go, you are a speck in an ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a tiny blip on the planet and the planet is a tiny blip in the galaxy, which is a tiny blip in the larger known universe. Right. Some people see that as a depressing thought and go, I'm so small and insignificant, nothing I do matters. And then some people go like, oh my God, I'm so small and insignificant that nothing I do matters. <laughs> I look at it a different way. I say as like an equalizer, like, oh, I'm a tiny blip, the planet's a tiny blip, the universe is a tiny blip, I'm as big as the universe. That, and you know what? That is the positive way to see it. And that's where I think people, those are the, that's the sides of the spectrum where people go, some people are really invigorated by that idea of yeah. like, oh my God, like they feel like pressure's off their shoulders yeah. and that they can be themselves and that it doesn't matter. <laughs> and some people are just kind of like, oh God, why do you even get out of bed? Yeah. Nothing I do matters, why? Those are the, so, those are the ends of but the spectrum. But it's the great equalizer. If nothing you do matters and nothing anyone does matter uh, matters and nothing matters, then everything matters the same. And therefore, everything matters. Well, it looks like you're a little bit of an existentialism <laughs> kind of guy. I mean, I believe everything matters anyway. I feel like but I even re- if you look at it as it doesn't matter, then it matters. And I feel like I remember in 
a pamphlet I read. It was called Existentialism and Human Emotions that Sartre read, uh, wrote um, a long time ago. I feel like I remember him defining it or one of the things that he was saying was um, every single thing that's ever happened has led to this moment. Uh -huh. Every single decision has led to this moment. And this moment will lead to every other moment. And yeah. I was like, okay, that's deep. But I guess it sort of means exactly what you're talking about, that everything is equal in a sort of a way. Mm -hmm. Like, what happened is the only thing that could have happened to get us to this moment. It's very, it's very uh, Matrix. Right. <laughs> it's know? very back to the future. Yeah, in a way, except without I mean, the time except, travel. Yeah, without the time travel. Uh, but it's very Matrixy in the sense of that you are stepping out of a larger program. Yeah. Um, and seeing that like, oh, I have control actually maybe over some things. I can I can decide if I go this way, I can decide if I go this way. Yeah. And I guess that's the thing is that you kind of get to define your existence. But even with the time travel, I'm thinking like, because every single development causes the, the present, right? Oh, you're talking about like the, yeah. yeah like when he goes the, back and he changes some things, you come back and everything is, it's you know, different. Is, diff is different. Yeah. But it, but it's true. Like everything that exists now is because of everything that existed then. Exactly. And and therefore, this reality is composed of things that were out of your. Con like I, I once had this. Uh, I, maybe it was even on this podcast. I don't remember. But I once had this theory that you know, if time travel exists, then it's theoretically possible that somebody went back in time, and did something, that messed everything. Which which would make me not responsible for the fact that my <laughs> career is not further along. <laughs> <laughs> so if there is such a concept of time travel, that takes all the onus off of me for not being where I want to be. Hey, you there know? you go. Again, <laughs> there was put a, a positive spin on it. There was another version of me that was doing it all right. Somebody went back and messed this up. It's not my fault. Yeah, you could say if time travel, exi <laughs> if time travel exists, yeah. it already happened. Yeah. You know, but then that brings up... Um, the theory of multiple universes, I guess, in a sort of way, uh -huh. where it's like there's infinite variations on this moment right. happening because of something else happened in the past, and then what happened in our our reality, something else happened. Right. So this reality is something different, which means there's this whole other reality where I'm doing great. Exactly. <laughs> and and I and I I attribute that to me. But you could also say that like if I'm doing really great in that reality, I must be doing really good in that because there's another yeah. reality where you're doing really badly. Yeah. And then that that Danny Lobel's version of reality, if he saw this reality for himself, he'd be like, oh my God, I'm doing really, really well. Mm -hmm. And that one, he's like, in, he's strung out in an alleyway with the needles hanging out of his eyeballs. Yeah. And this one, he's like, I live in a house. Like, I got a beard. Like, all sorts yeah. of things are going well for me. <laughs> yeah, it just, and this, it makes me more appreciative of, of what I have. I'll bring it back to her. Uh, a little bit about her family life, Simone de Beauvoir was born in Paris on uh, January 9th, 1908. As I said, her parents were Georges Bertrand de Beauvoir, a legal secretary who once aspired to be an actor, hmm. and uh, Francois de Beauvoir. Francois? Francois, maybe. I, 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 F if it... R-A-N-C-O. C with a weird thing. O-I-S-E. Uh, oh. A wealthy banker's daughter and devout Catholic. Uh, Simone's sister, Helene, I'm probably butchering These are that all too. French names, yeah. so it's fine. Was born two years later. The family struggled to maintain their bougie status. After losing much of their fortune, 
Shortly after World War I, and Francis insisted that the two daughters be sent to prestigious convent school. I love that you're going for the names. I, I anyway, I, you're I, like, can't say it, but I'm going to say it. I'm I, still going to do it. I fight through it. De Beauvoir herself was deeply uh, religious as a child, at one point intending to become a nun. Sounds like you in some ways. Like <laughs> a religious child who, you know, was... Uh, any, uh, anyway, um, no, I got you. P- pushed into the family was was struggling for money. They pushed her into a prestigious school. Sounds like a lot of pressure. I don't know if I'm reaching, but I, I'm seeing some parables. <laughs> 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 she experienced a crisis of faith at age 14. Uh, what? What? You, how old were you? I was probably uh, I was probably younger than that. Yeah. After which she remained an atheist for the rest of her life. Okay, I was. I've never considered myself an atheist. I've never gone that far. Yeah, m- well, me neither. But I, but but, an agnostic, sure, but not necessarily an atheist. Yeah, that's just like you know, you, you're putting your toe into atheism for a second. You're yeah, like, it's just kind of like see how it feels. Feels really cold. <laughs> really, really cold. Um, okay, she was intellectually prestigious, fueled by her father's encouragement. He reportedly would boast. Simone thinks like a man because of her family's. Uh, strange circumstances, De Beauvoir could no longer rely on her dow- dowry, and like other middle-class girls of her age, her marriage opportunities were put at risk. De Beauvoir took this opportunity to do what she always wanted to do, uh, while she was also taking steps to earn a living for herself. And then it goes on into her career. But um, I'm going to go back now to the summary here of uh, Alex said, "What you have in common is that your album is called Black, Black Existential Crisis. Crisis." Yeah. So he picked an existential philosopher. So, okay. That's funny, yeah. I mean, I, I do, I called it that on purpose um, because sometimes I say black existential or black existentialism because it, I, I ponder what does it mean to be black? What is a black existence entail? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, that's very smart. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I totally gave a nod to that in my yeah. album my album title and the kind of things that i try to study in my act these days are are, are inside of and, that and that sounds like what your documentary is about as well yeah and what have you figured out what does it mean to be black well i mean that's a that's an interesting question danny um as as stupid as it sounds to say that that's a good question danny <laughs> uh what does it mean well first of all i mean it's something that i'm still contemplating um and i am reading everyone that I could, because I'm seeing in a way that I have had my experience. Um, I have had what I would call an authentically black experience because it is my experience and I'm black. Mm-hmm. So what if I said this to another person, because sometimes I used to feel like I would try to talk about my childhood on stage and then the audience was going like, not as bad as The Wire. That's not as bad as The So it's like there's so many examples of yeah. it that people are are using as their reference points that my story especially because like when i as an actor um i would go out for roles all the time but that weren't necessarily written by black people and even if they were a lot of the times it's like stuff that everyone kind of agrees is the black experience you know you grew up in this neighborhood in this way with these pressures and therefore you act talk and think like these things and since i don't do that People want to take away from me the identity of being black all of the time. and But I had an authentically black experience. So do I sound like everybody that I grew up with? No. Do I think like everybody I grew up with? No. But did I grow up with them? Yes. I grew up in a ghetto. I grew up around gangs. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was reading Shakespeare. Sure. 
but that, does that make me any less black than somebody else? The, and so it's like, and I have kind of come around to people like, like someone who's actually getting a lot of, uh, a, a bit of a resurgence right now is James Baldwin, who is an essayist and you could say he's a philosopher in a lot of different ways, you know? Um, but he was an essayist and novelist and a thinker and observer, a reporter of a lot of, in a lot of different ways. And so he was wrapped up in that question. W.E.B. Du Bois was wrapped up in that question. Martin Luther King Jr. was wrapped up in that question. Malcolm X was wrapped up in that question. They all, everybody has different ideas on what blackness is and how to apply. And they're, they're taking in the culture at large and seeing what these things are. So what it means to be black is something that I think is, it's, it's hard to define. And I think that that's actually part of it, mm -hmm. is that everyone's wrapped up in looking for their own existence. That's why I say black existential. Yeah. That we're all in the midst of a crisis of looking for ourselves in a world that has all these ideas about us already. It seems like you're still fighting the same battle from your childhood uh, of being in school when they were, you know, point, trying to make an example of you as what a black kid should be uh, yes. to the other to the other kids. And, and you're like, no, now you're going to use the fact that I'm different against me and uh, and the fact that I've that I, I'm into these things is now going to work as a detriment to me and isolate me. And, and it seems like it's happening again in your acting career, like where they're like, okay, well, we need you to dumb down over here to, yes. to, to be black. You need, we, we, you're gangster number three, so we need right. you to act like that sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's like a reverse. It's like there they're like, all right, be smarter, be smarter. And you had to dumb yourself down. Now here they're saying dumb down, dumb down. And you're like, no, I want to, I want to. I want to play the top of my intelligence. Yeah, and that's because I'm an adult now, and like I'm okay with being who I am. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to report from this authentic experience, and it's no one else's. It's mine. Um, just like you know, like the rifle and Full Metal Jacket is mine. And so for me, it is this because at the same time with that thing about I'm being made an example of in school of how to be. Um, to other black kids. The example that they are being told they should be is what? A conformist? Because I go like, I was just interested in knowledge. Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to be white. I wasn't aiming to um, be somebody who I knew could get into a good college and get a good job and essentially join society and say like, I agree with all of the ideas that society has told me is true. That's not where I was headed. But in a way, that's why I was being celebrated. You know, if you, because that's the thing. If you do good at school, yeah. you get a good job, you become a good citizen, right? Mm -hmm. And that is one path. But that means that you have to believe in all of those things the whole way through. Yeah. And at some point, it always breaks. That's the weird thing about college. A lot of the times, I feel like people have to go to college to find out, I should have never gone to college. It's not a requirement. Yeah. And it makes people who didn't go to college, it makes people who didn't graduate from high school feel like something is wrong with them. Sure. Education is one thing, and it's also something that our, our country decided has got to look a certain way, it's got to feel a certain way, and we're trying to, it's a one-size-fits-all box that everyone's being stuffed into, and so anyone who doesn't automatically fit into that box is being told something is wrong and with you. they feel inadequate and insecure. One of the things I, when I, I don't if you remember, and when I used to do comical radio uh, oh, yeah. back in New York, yeah, yeah, and we had George Carlin on the show, and uh, one thing he said that stuck with me was that he he pushed so hard to to show the world that he was intellectual through his comedy 
for so many years mm. because he never went to college and he always felt inadequate Ins- about oh, it. Oh, yeah. And, and he wanted everybody to know that he was smart so despite funny. the fact. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Hicks was the same. It's like it, it, almost not going to college pushed him harder, harder. than co- college would have ever pushed him. Uh, here's a summary that Alex gave us on Simone de Beauvoir. There are two types of beings in the universe, conscious and unconscious. Mm. Unconscious beings are inanimate objects which have an unchanging nature ingrained in them. Conscious beings are animals with thought and choice. Both share the limitations placed on them by their physical makeup. What makes conscious beings different is that they constantly create their own nature through choices. This is the ambiguity of conscious existence. Mm. We are limited by our physical bodies, yet we feel possibilities beyond them. Our body is our physical limitation, but our mind is what truly creates our nature. Mm. The fact that though we can overcome body gives rise to freedom and more obligation, we cannot use our thought to limit someone else's freedom because then we limit the potential of all human development, which honestly feels exactly like what you just said to me. And that's the heart of racism. That's what racism is. That's what sexism is. That's what classism is. When we, when we say you're supposed to fit yeah. into an idea that I have, and because you don't, you're less than, we are limiting other people's freedom. Or into a time slot. Or Yes, <laughs> a time slot and a time travel. That's it. That's, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And this also talks, uh, in terms of race, I can see this being interesting in terms of like who you are, being your conscious being of who you are inside, uh, is totally um, different than your body and therefore your race and therefore your skin color and everything. And and it's interesting to your journey um, of of trying to figure out what, what it means to be black, which I almost feel is a question of what it means to be you. Absolutely. You know? that's, that's absolutely true. What it, it is a question of what it means to be me because the thing about blackness is it doesn't really exist. There are no black people. Everyone in Africa was just there. They were people. They, everyone looked the same. Everyone kind of felt the same. Then blackness is essentially an invention that was made to differentiate black people from white people, right? Mm-hmm. So then Europeans invented it so that way they could justify manifest destiny. They could justify being able to take people and say, you're not really human. You're three-fifths of a human. In fact, we defined it on these words that you can't read. And so that was an invention that everybody has to deal with. Now, he says the word consciousness, so there's a great writer who is an, another kind of a, um, a father, if you will, of, of black American thought named W.E.B. Du Bois, and he talks at length about a concept he calls the double consciousness, which is the experience you have as a black person of living your life through your own eyes. Mm-hmm. You just are going through your day as you, you're not necessarily thinking about whether or not you're black. You just are yourself. That's how I feel about being fat. There you go. And then people see you. Then people see you. Yeah. And treat you differently based on what they think you are. And then I remember, oh yeah, I'm very overweight. I had And a then joke it makes you self-conscious. This. It makes you self-conscious. Yeah. I had a joke about this starting out where I would be like, can't remember exactly the joke, but it had to do with, with getting girls and, 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 and my friend getting girls. And I'd be like... He's getting all these girls and I'm not, and I don't get it. We're both the same. We do this and this and that. And then, oh, right. I'm morbidly obese. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> the, the, that was like the punchline. I was just yeah. like, 
<laughs> it's mo- the fr- morbidly obese is just such a weird, <laughs> funny right. phrase. Yeah, we end the the show here with uh, asking the guests to read three quotes. And, oh, and then we discuss each quote after you read them. But will you do the honor of of uh, reading the quotes uh, to, to close this out here today? Well, actually, I think this first quote kind of speaks to what I was just saying. Uh, Misfortune comes from the fact that man's freedom was first concealed from him all his life. He will be nostalgic for the time when he did not know its exigencies. Ooh, that's a $5 word right there. (laughs) Exigencies. Um, Misfortune comes from the fact that man's freedom was first concealed from him. All his life he will be nostalgic for the time when he did not know its exigencies. That kind of is like what you were talking about when you were saying that like depression, you know, we were talking about the prison of depression and you just said, I feel free. Yeah. So the thing is like, you understand what freedom feels like yeah you know but but that's something that you had to get to we're all born free and then suddenly the world puts all of this stuff around you mm-hmm. that we we accept as a fact and as a truth because what else are we supposed to think and now you fall into a certain narrative it's like oh by the way baron you're black and by yes. the way this is what it means to be black and, yes and, and then you're like oh okay well you know, now I'm part of your narrative. You exactly, know? but I'll always feel nostalgic for this freedom that I don't even know that I know. Yeah. I know an idea of freedom, of validity, of truth. In, it's inside us all, and anything that's in our way that separates us from that is um, uh, trauma. <laughs> you know, it's traumatic, it's traumatizing. But we're always gonna know, like, something's missing. There's something else that I think that's kind of what she's talking about. We'll always be nostalgic for the time that we did not know mm-hmm. its exigencies. That essentially freedom was hidden from us and we can feel it somewhere deep down inside of us. Mm-hmm. But everyone else around us is telling us we're crazy in some sort of way. I, I assume she was coming at this from a feminist point of view, which I probably guess would fit really well. Because that's yeah. true. That's true for women. Definitely true yeah. for women. Yeah. That there's an idea of what a woman is that fits into whatever culture or whatever society a woman finds herself in. Mm -hmm. And then she's made to feel crazy about anything that she wants or feels or thinks that doesn't fit that box. Mm -hmm. But she knows it's true deep down. Like, no, there's, there's a truth here. There's a, there's something that's, that's other than what I'm being told. And then that's how you get like a a hysteria. You know what hysteria is? Mm -hmm. That, that, oh, was it uh, Victorian England? They basically, hysteria is a medical diagnosis that is essentially bitches be crazy. That's what that <laughs> medical diagnosis was, <laughs> is that these women didn't want to fit into what society was telling them it meant to be a woman. <laughs> thus, they must be insane. Corsages. They're insane. Yeah, yeah. And the, then that's how the dildo was invented, mm-hmm. apparently, really? or the vibrator, or I mean to say, it was invented to, as a treatment for hysteria. Did, did being raised by two women wind up making you more sensitive to women or did you find women harder to deal with? Um, well, I think more sensitive, definitely, because like I being raised by women means I, I almost communicate like a woman, you mm-hmm. know, that I kind of I have an emotional language that most straight men do not have. Mm-hmm. And um, because I've a lot of women I've dated in in the past, like when I tell them I was raised by two women, they're like, "Oh, I've had women say things to me that are like so sad." Like I remember this girl told me she kind of understood that I was raised by women because when she told me anything, I was not surprised that she knew anything. I was like, "What?" She's like, "Most of the time, like she was a scientist." 
right? <laughs> and so she was like, if I tell a man, like a man might be talking to me about the moon that I've studied, and then I'll tell him something about the moon, and he's like surprised that I know things. Yeah. It's like, you've never been surprised that I know things, which uh -huh. means that you have always talked to women as equals. And I was like, whoa, okay, that's cool. Huh. But that's a, yeah, that's, so that's, I kind of, I'm into my feelings in a way that a lot of men are not taught to be. Again, this is another advantage, if you will, of not having a dad. Right. Is that I didn't have a guy being like, men are like this, be one. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I guess I have to guess. <laughs> um, you want to get to the next quote here? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Failure is a very condition of life. One can never dream of eliminating it without immediately dreaming of death. One should not consent to failure, but one must consent to struggle against it without respite. Okay. Hmm. I'll read that again. Yeah, okay. I didn't get it the first time either. Failure is a very condition of life. She's saying failure is part of life. Okay. One can never dream of eliminating it without immediately dreaming of death. You can't get rid of failure. Failure is a part of life, and if, you, if you're dreaming about not ever being a failure, then you're thinking about dying. Right. You're, you're putting the, the, um, the, if I fail, that means I'm gonna die. Yeah. If I can't, I have to stop failing because I'm gonna die, so I have to stop failing before I die, right? Like, yeah, I, one thing that I found very inspirational in my Jewish learning was the idea that the concept of God doesn't want you to be perfect. It's not about how you fall. God is not angry. God is not mad at you for falling. God is not a, a human, not emotional. Mm -hmm. But the reason why you fall is because God likes to watch to see how well you can get up. And I always like that. I think like, that's that's exactly what she's saying here. Yeah. You know, one one should not consent to failure. Don't go, ah, oh, I'm a failure, I failed, it sucks, I guess I'm a failure. But one must consent to struggle against it without respite. Respite means arrest. Uh -huh. And she's saying that like, you gotta, not con you gotta not go, I'm a failure, you gotta be like, sometimes I fail, and I'm gonna keep trying regardless of the fact that I fail. Right, the failing is part of the succeeding. Yes, it's part of life. Yeah. If you try to get rid of failure, then you're thinking too much about dying. And you're putting that pressure of, right. I gotta not fail before I die on yourself, instead of being like, failure is a thing. I'm gonna fail sometimes, and when it happens, I'm still gonna keep going. Yeah. All right. Cool. Just getting into it, Dan. <laughs> and the last quote, uh, to will oneself moral and to will oneself free are the same decision. Ooh. To will oneself moral and to will oneself free. Are the same decision. How is that the same decision? She's saying that morality and freedom are the same. I don't get it. I don't get how morality and freedom are the same. I think that's for us to contemplate. You know, that's for <laughs> that's for us to figure out. Like, well, what? Why is that the same thing? Um, yeah, that's a hard one. That, it, it's funny because it's the only one that's one sentence, and I feel like it's <laughs> it's one sentence that's super dense, and I'm not even sure I can say. I feel like that's one of those things that you have to. Let it sit for a while. You let it sit. Yeah. That that's one of those things to take around with you. To will oneself moral and to will oneself free are the same decision. She's saying you get to decide whether or not you're moral. You know, and you get to decide. Ah. You get to decide whether or not you're moral. If you're deciding that you're moral, mm. then you're deciding that you're free. And if you're deciding that you're free, then you're deciding that you're moral. And I guess in a sort of a way, like, to me, I look at free, to know freedom is to know when people are not experiencing freedom. 
And that, to me, is oppression. So if I can release myself from oppression and feel freedom, that means it's easier for me to see what's in another person's way, wow. what's, in another, what's in a society's morals that they are holding people down. Yeah, and if you, if you can see morality, then you can also clearly see what's immoral. Yes. In the same respect as you're talking about freedom. Like, it's, it's, uh, it's a clarity. Right. And, and my morality, or what I want for everyone, is freedom. So, and that's my morality, is I can see, that's what makes me figure out what I stand for, is seeing what is in the way of the freedom of others. And I think she's also saying, um, you will your the will, I think, is the key word, maybe. Yeah. Because you can will yourself moral. You could just be immoral. You could just decide, hey, you know what? Screw it. Yeah. I, don't, I don't care. I don't care. And uh, and I'm just going to do whatever because wh why not? And uh, but or or you could also say no. I'm I've decided. That's it. I'm I'm keeping to a moral guide now. I'm I'm going to will myself moral. And then but people maybe don't think that way about freedom. They're like freedom is not my choice. Whereas morality is my choice. And she's maybe saying, the same oh, no, thing. you can will yourself free, too. Well, because also it's, it's she, in, in this sentence, she's using the word oneself. So she's not saying it's a culture that is telling you what's moral. Yeah. It's not a culture that's telling you what's free. You have to tell yourself. You have to will yourself into morality. And that it might not match what your society is telling you is moral and freedom, which is the response that somebody would have if they just watched millions of Jews get killed mm -hmm. is that was for the German people at that time moral to them yeah they thought it was the key to their freedom right yeah no because that society was corrupt so you might be inside of Nazi Germany and you could either go mm, I'm gonna be a Nazi because that's what everyone's doing around me or you could stand up and say no that's not right I'm I and then that morality of knowing yeah. that you have to stand up against evil comes the freedom of knowing that you're not participating in evil. You might get killed. <laughs> yeah. But you know what you stood for. Yeah. Wow. Because cool. this, again, this is a woman who, this is post-World War II people being like, how did this fucked up shit happen? Yeah. <laughs> how did this happen? Why? Did, why? Yeah. It's that sort of thing where it's just kind of like, you know, um, what's his name? Um, What's his name? Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> <laughs> Marty? <laughs> he has this quote. It's, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I guess that that's a similar idea to me. She's, she's calling on yourself to find what your morality is. Thus, you will find your freedom mm -hmm. or vice versa. And then he's saying that, like, this is what you have to stand up for. If you see injustice one place, it's, it's injustice all the pl in all the places and this is what's energizing a lot of the country right now against yeah. uh, the current president so it's uh i think that that quote's speaking to a lot of people right now absolutely you know you see if you see a little bit going wrong it can spread if it, you it, see it, something it's say something <laughs> <laughs> it was all there in the subway the it whole was in time. the subway the entire time the calls were coming from inside the subway car <laughs> there's so much inspiration you can find in these city signs no parking. Where, what can you get out of that? <laughs> um, uh, don't stay in one place too long. You know what I mean? <laughs>
Move, keep moving, keep perpetuating life yeah. so you can surpass it. No parking. No parking. And, and when they tell you no parking during this time to that time, you say, hey, listen, don't put those times on me. <laughs> that is you. That is a, that's a, that's, I was born free, man. Yeah. And I'm nostalgic I, for the time <laughs> when these signs weren't here. I could just park wherever I wanted. I'm not going to be oppressed by your version of time. Yeah, tell, man. Try to tell that to him. That's my morality. That's how I'm free. <laughs> I can park here no matter if there's a sign or not. I'm free. That would be a great conversation about time with a with a parking enforcement person who's coming there to give you a ticket and you're trying to explain. You don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> and they, Time is just a construct of people trying to put pa their power on you. And they would say, I do not have time for this. Here's your <laughs> do you ticket. know why you don't have time for this? No, I'm out of here. Here's because your, your time is owned by somebody else. I'm giving you three tickets yeah. now. Two are for boring me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, was it a good experience meeting your dad? Yes, it was. Because look, like I said, I had a bunch of holes in the story. I didn't know a lot of things. And because of that, I was making up things all the time that, oh, it could be this, it could be that. And I didn't realize that that was such a weight on me in a lot of ways. A burden I was carrying is having this, having no information. So meeting him, learning the circumstances of how my parents met, what happened when I was born, what happened after I was born, where everybody went, how they dealt with it. It doesn't matter if I like it or not. It's what happened. And that in itself is what has helped me let go of it in a lot of different ways. And were your fears realized, or did he did he treat you with love? Or Treated kindness? me with love, respect. Yeah, he was because I told him I wasn't coming from a place of shaming or anger. I was just looking to find out what happened and understand. And he was really because I said he's been to war, you know. So he's mm -hmm. he he's came back to the country with PTSD, and he he had to work on himself as well and go to therapy and stuff like that. So f letting go of things is a big theme in his life. Mm -hmm. He's very also, he's got other children. So I have some other siblings that I, I've yet to meet. Oh, wow. um, I met one, but he's slowly telling everybody about me that he's really into his children. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that his dad forced him to be in the army. His dad was, I think he was really afraid of his dad. That's one of the reasons I think when my mom said she was pregnant, he was like, oh, I can't do this. Like, my dad's not going to approve of you. Mm -hmm. All the things that made her so attractive were now a problem yeah because dad's not gonna like it this is my you know my amateur psychoanalysis of yeah. what i think happened so but i think he didn't respond to that and i think that he didn't want to do that to his children so the kids that he has he's very much encouraged them to be their own individuals and don't you don't have to be what i tell you to be i'm going to give you knowledge and give you options definitely that's what it means to be a parent but i don't i'm not making you in my image yeah a sort of thing so he was very he's very open to me in, in a way I was not expecting. I wonder if he's gonna assume like a real fatherly role in your life from this point on. Who knows? I'm an adult already. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you still got a long way to go. Because it's not like I have like a, a you know a position open in the cabinet where I'm just like, yeah <laughs> Daddy's here, get the seat ready. You know, I wasn't I wasn't waiting for him yeah. like that. Honestly I never thought that was even gonna happen. Yeah. You know, so and to know him and to know he's around and he's he's open to to talking and and I can ask him advice if I want to. He hasn't forced anything on me at all. It's all been moving yeah. at like a, a pretty uh, leisurely pace, casual play. I actually owe him a phone call. I probably should call him. Kind of an exciting place to be, I would imagine, is is suddenly like you know, so many people at your age, sadly, are losing their parents. Yeah, and, and you just found one, got one. Yeah, I just got my dad for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're young, so. luckily. 
Yeah. You know, neither of my parents were 60 yet, so I, I, they might be around for a little bit more. Yeah, that's, that's uh, well, that'll be an interesting journey ahead for you, man. It, that's, that's the only kind of journeys <laughs> I like to take. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> I'll see you hopefully before another 10 years. <laughs> I hope so, Danny. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> everybody that's our show thank you so much for listening i'm danny lobel you're the audience and our guest today was baron vaughn the incredible baron vaughn go and look him up online find his social media stuff become a fan a follower and go see him perform he's terrific please as i mentioned go on itunes leave five stars and a nice comment oh can we have one more example of a nice comment sure okay fine here's one that says great mix of comedy and conversation five stars by farm dog 69 and FarmDog69 says, Chill out, philosophiles. The philosopher and the philosophy only serve as a springboard for conversation. That's right. Yeah, yeah, philosophiles. Finally, people are speaking. People are getting it. And these are some great conversations. Much of the entertainment of a given episode is dependent upon the guest. Some are great. Some are not so much. Okay, fair, fine. But Danny, Danny is solid. I am. Thank you. Thanks so much. He and Mark Marin are the best interviewers in the business. Hey, that's good company to be in. I'll take it. Not sure if it's true, but I like it. I like the sentiment. If you want to hear some great content, check out Danny's interviews with Mark, Artie Lang, Colin Quinn, Brian Regan, Aisha Tyler, and Larry Miller. Those are my favorites. I liked all those too. Thank you. Many others to enjoy. Danny's a great interviewer because he's a great listener. I'm listening. I'm listening to you saying I'm a good listener. He's also not afraid of the silences. I live in them. A key attribute of any great interviewer. Keep up the great work, Danny. Keep up the great work, Farm Dog 69 And thank you. Thank you for the good review. You can be a reviewer, too. And it's free. Go on iTunes, leave five stars and a nice comment, and I may read yours on the air as well. Thecomical at Yahoo.com is the email address at which you can reach me. Seasons 1 through 5 are available for sale on iTunes with lots of great guests, many of the ones that that person mentioned in their comment. You can also follow me on Twitter at MDP underscore podcast. And we have an Instagram page now. It's all linked on moderndayphilosophers.net where you can also donate and pick up my new album, The Nicest Boy in Barcelona. So much you can do. So much you can do. And by the way, there's still a few copies left of my vinyl. If you want it for the holidays, it's a nice present for the holidays. Take it home. For the holidays, it's a limited edition run that we did. It's almost sold out, and I, you can get them on StandUpRecords.com. That's right. They have them there. So if you want one, pick it up while supplies last, because I don't think we're ever going to be making any more. It wasn't the hottest seller, let's be honest. But there are still a few left this time around. And other than that, have a wonderful, happy, warm Thanksgiving with your families. And I'll see you next time. With another, wait a minute, I forgot to mention something. <sighs> and it's not really like I forgot, it's just that I wasn't interested in talking about it because it's too heavy of a subject. It's the passing of my friend Ralphie May, and I promised you guys I'd put an episode out about it, and I haven't yet. And that's intentional, because I started doing it, and it was too hard, and so I shelved it for a little bit. But I will do it. He needs and deserves to have a tribute on this show. You have no idea how instrumental and influential that man was on my life. And um, what an incredible tzaddik, as they say in Hebrew, righteous, holy man he was. Um, so 
I will be posting a Ralphie May episode at some point, hopefully soon. I spoke at his memorial at the improv. I spoke from my heart. People seem to like it. And uh, I will say something longer than this on the show and play some old clips of me and Ralphie. But um, until then, I won't. Pretty, pretty simple there, huh? I will when I do, but until I do, I won't. All right, all the other stuff I mentioned, don't forget about it. Check out Green Blender. Make sure you check out the incredible podcast that was kind enough to support this podcast. I'm talking about the Fake Outrage Report. The Fake Outrage Report is available on iTunes, and they are reporting on all the things that people are getting outraged about and telling you which ones you should and which ones you probably shouldn't be outraged about. Check them out. Check out Alex Wasella's episode on there. Support Alex. Support the show. All right, everybody. See you next time. Bye-bye.